wasted potential. It's a phrase that unloads a crippling fear of failure, of squandered talent. But this isn't so much a story about potential that was wasted as it is about talent redirected. See, Lee Israel did her best to put her skills as a writer to good use. In fact, for a while, she was a respected and sought-after biographer. But when the bloom was off her rose, things started to get desperate. And desperate people? Well, sometimes, to quote Lee, they do mischief. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we're following the literary crimes of Lee Israel, a successful biographer who fell on hard times and let desperation get the best of her. But before long, she was having the most fun of her career. Next week, we'll see Lee's schemes get much bigger and begin to spiral out of control before she's finally brought undone. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. We don't know much about Lee Israel's early life. And honestly, that's okay, because it seems unlikely that it informed her later crimes. We know that she was born in Brooklyn in 1939 and that she graduated college in 1961. After that, she worked as a freelance writer, publishing articles on film, theater, and television in newspapers like the New York Times. It's this Lee, the talented writer supporting herself with her words, that's important to this story. So that's where we'll begin, when Lee was established and at least moderately successful and always, always learning. Around May of 1967, Lee was contracted to write a piece about Katherine Hepburn and flew out to Los Angeles to meet with her. When it was eventually published in Esquire that November, the story was sprawling and showed off Lee's ability to capture her subject's essence. She'd spent several days speaking with Hepburn, and although the revered actress didn't approve of how much Lee smoked, it seems they formed a bond during the experience. Shortly after the interview, Hepburn sent her interviewer a letter written in her dashed-off scrawl sharing her grief over the death of her co-star and lover, Spencer Tracy. The paper was dotted with Hepburn's tears, which she apologized for. In the article, Lee wrote about the way Hepburn cried in her films. It was a battle for her. She didn't part with them easily. Lee never seemed like the sentimental sort, but perhaps knowing how much those tears cost Hepburn, she cherished the letter. 
All the same, there was little time for sentiment when you lived by your pen. Less than two years later, she signed a deal to write a biography about Tallulah Bankhead, a legendary actress who rose to fame during Hollywood's golden age. It was her first book, and she was paid an advance of $7,500, which would be in the region of $55,000 in 2021. She used the money to rent a modest studio apartment in New York's Upper West Side, where she lived, quote, in the shadow of Zabar's, the iconic grocery store. Despite the somewhat prestigious location, her morning view wasn't of Manhattan's busy streets. Nope, she looked out onto brick and pigeons. Still, the apartment was rent-controlled, which made things easier on Lee's purse. So, with a book contract under her belt, a cat on her lap, and an affordable roof over her head, Lee sat down to write her first book. But of course, there was a lot of research to be done, and there wasn't much of it that a writer could do from their apartment in the 1960s. So Lee spent a lot of time at libraries and archives, including the Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center. Back then, research into a person's life meant combing through archives for letters and diaries to piece together a complete picture. And over the next two or so years, that's just what Lee did, bringing her findings together into a biography to be proud of. Miss Tallulah Bankhead was published in 1972 and was a critical success, if not a commercial hit. Despite the book's less-than-stellar sales, it garnered the 32-year-old author enough attention that her career looked set to pick up steam. For some people, that kind of success might go to your head. But for Lee... No, wait, it definitely went to her head. But to be honest, that's not that surprising. Before we continue with Lee's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we've done a lot of research for the show. We often shake our heads at people whose personalities change after they experience success, but research suggests that this is something we literally can't control. A 2009 study published in Neuron showed that certain stimuli and experiences can affect a subject's neural activity, resulting in a learned association. This process, which falls under the umbrella term neuroplasticity, seems to leave a stronger, short-term impression when a response is considered correct and the subject is rewarded as such. According to Earl Miller, the lead researcher on the study, after failure, there was little change in brain activity. He says that this may indicate that success informs our behavior more than failure. Of course, Lee had never known failure of any kind, so it seems her brain adjusted to her success accordingly. Following her first book, she was something of a darling of the New York publishing scene. She was courted by editors and publishers who took her out to chic restaurants and plied her with gin martinis. Those lunches led to more work, and sometime in the mid-1970s, she started work on a new book. The next biography was all about the late reporter Dorothy Kilgallen. Officially, Kilgallen's death was caused by an overdose of alcohol and barbiturates, but Lee didn't buy that it was accidental. While working on the book, she used to swim laps, her strokes syncopated with a question echoing through her head. 
Who killed Dorothy? Who killed Dorothy? When she wasn't trying to solve a mystery few others seemed concerned with, Lee spent her days researching the book at one of her favorite places, the Library for the Performing Arts. She was comfortable there. In fact, she liked the place so much that she donated some of the money she made from Miss Tallulah Bankhead to the library. The donation was the move of a woman confident in her success. And when Kilgallen was published in 1980, that confidence seemed pretty justified. The book definitely sold better than her first and even made the New York Times bestseller list. That was an accomplishment 39-year-old Lee was particularly proud of. She loved to tell people that she was a New York Times bestseller. And honestly, wouldn't you? The book fell off the list after just a week, but that didn't matter. It still sold relatively well. In the end, it made Lee a good deal of money. Oh, she wasn't out splurging on luxuries, but it was enough to keep her in restaurants and taxis. At least for now, that is. Lee wasn't as cautious with her money as she probably should have been. Imprudent, she labeled herself, but she'd spent so much time working on Kilgallen that she felt entitled to several months away from her desk, a little time to enjoy her success, her life, and her drinks. That might be how she fell briefly in love with a bartender named Elaine. Eventually, though, she needed to get going on her next project, and that's when Lee's smooth path turned rocky. She signed contracts to write several different biographies that never panned out. For the most part, here's how it went. She'd receive an advance, then spend months researching her subject, only to discover that there wasn't much story there after all. Unfortunately, all of these false starts were costing Lee money. Whenever she gave up on a book, she had to return the advance, even though she'd already spent thousands of dollars on her research. One memorable failed project put Lee in the same room as Betty Davis, who asked her to co-author her autobiography. But it didn't go well. Lee was prickly, and Miss Davis was notoriously combative. After the partnership went belly up, people asked Lee what happened. She simply told them, I yelled back. Unfortunately, yelling back wasn't something she could really afford to do. As the months slipped by, Lee's situation was looking desperate, which must have been a shock. Just years earlier, she'd been the wonderkind, the new hotshot in the world of biographies. But now, she was down to the last $500 in her retirement account. That was it. Then, a lifeline appeared. Macmillan, the publisher, reached out to Lee with a proposition. They wanted an unauthorized biography of Estee Lauder, the self-made cosmetics mogul whose products dominated 20th century makeup counters. Ironically, Macmillan wanted a book that was warts and all, a scandalous book that would blow up the many tall tales Lauder had told about her life over the years. Not that Lee much cared about what scandals the book might create. She was desperate for money, and Macmillan was handing her a check in the high five figures. But before she even had time to make a start on the book, Lee got a call from an old acquaintance, Jack Hawk, and he had an intriguing offer to make. 
Jack told Lee that he was calling on behalf of Este herself, though the message came through several intermediaries. It seemed that she didn't want her warts exposed and was willing to pay Lee not to write the book. So what was one of the richest women in the world offering? $60,000. It was enough to cover some back taxes Lee owed the government and to repay a book advance she still owed a publisher. But she turned the money down. That's when Estee's next message came through. She said that Lee could name her price. However, Lee didn't like this offer any better than the first one. The whole idea felt seedy, and she didn't trust it. So she issued her final refusal. She was going ahead with her book. Now, if this were a story about good triumphing over evil, this might be the part where I tell you that Lee forged ahead, producing a spectacular book that was hailed as a masterpiece and cemented her legacy as a true genius of her time. But of course, this isn't that kind of story. Lee wrote her book, yes, but at the same time, Estee's company rushed its own official version into publication. The race was on, which meant that Lee had to drop her standards quite a bit. She was usually methodical and exacting in her research, but time wasn't on her side for this one. Lee's Estee Lauder, Beyond the Magic, was set to be published in November of 1985, around the same time as the official Estee A Success Story hit shelves. Based on the sales of her last book, as well as interest in the subject matter, Lee's book was somewhat anticipated, particularly at Manhattan bookstores near the Estee Lauder and Revlon headquarters. Lee even signed 100 copies for one particular store. But then publication day came, and things didn't go as planned. Lee's hurried book was critically panned and sold dismally. Most of those signed copies stayed on the shelf, gathering dust. All of a sudden, the lifeline had slipped through Lee's fingers. For the first time in her career, she'd produced a complete dud. And as someone who'd never failed before, it was disconcerting. She was on the outside looking in, and she had no idea how to find the door. Coming up, Lee sees an opportunity and commits her first crime. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices, others warn of impending doom, and then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows. Others operate in plain sight. All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify eBay Motors is here for the ride. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Now, back to the story. In November of 1985, 45-year-old Lee Israel published her first flop. She was a fallen star, but not the kind you make a wish on. She was a space rock, crashed into Earth with a resounding thud, and no one was around to notice when Lee landed. Now, with no royalty checks rolling in, Lee was suddenly desperate. And it was around this time that she sold one of her most treasured possessions, a heartfelt letter she'd received from Katharine Hepburn years earlier, the one splotched with the Oscar winner's tears. Lee sold it to an autograph and memorabilia dealer in uptown Manhattan, exchanging the tear-stained note for $250. Obviously, it wasn't enough to sustain her, but it was at least a stopgap for the time being while Lee looked for a steady income. But it turned out that years spent working at home with a cat on her lap, followed by martini lunches where people lavished her with praise, had made her completely unsuited to a 9-to-5 lifestyle. Still, she wasn't a total lost cause. An employment agency found her occasional work, including a brief stint as a secretary for a wealthy socialite whom Lee compared to a slaveholder in the antebellum South, and various assignments as a legal proofreader at some of New York City's elite law firms. But the work was dull, and it wasn't enough to keep Lee feeling secure, so she started selling off more of her possessions. Unfortunately, she didn't have any other valuable letters from movie stars lying around. All she had was books, loads of them. So whenever she was down to the last few dollars in her pocket, she gathered an armful of volumes and carried them down to the Strand Bookstore on Lower Broadway. One day, about two weeks before Christmas, she made her trip down to the Strand. The armful of books aggravated the pain of her arthritis, but it was bound to pay off. She was sure she could net around $8 for the books. However, the sales clerk glanced at the books, told her he wasn't interested, and ordered her to, quote, get your garbage off my counter. That was the final straw for Lee. She couldn't carry the books back home. They were too heavy, and her joints ached from the cold. So she let the man have it, calling him glacial, merchant, and a prick, as well as Pickwickian. As good as she was with words, Lee didn't actually know what Pickwickian meant. And for the record, it's not the vicious insult she might have hoped it was. So after essentially calling her nemesis a jovial, glacial, generous prick, Lee shoved the books off the counter and onto the store's dusty floor. That'll show him. But all that happened was that a security guard removed Lee from the store, effectively ending a relationship that had helped keep her head above water. So now what? Well, Lee still had books to sell, so she dragged a card table from her apartment down to the street and sometimes managed to get a couple of bucks a piece. 
it was around this time that Lee started going on and off welfare, and proud as she was, that was really, really hard for her to swallow. She didn't so much as skip into the offices as she trudged, mortified by the smell in the elevators, which she labeled eau de desperation. This glib comment betrays just how Lee felt about accepting a financial handout. She was ashamed, and that feeling likely had some negative consequences. According to the Poverty Shame Nexus created by researchers Robert Walker and Elaine Chase, poverty-induced shame can lead to lower self-esteem and withdrawal from society. And on top of it all, Lee was terrified that she'd end up living on the streets. To cope with the stress and the shame, she was drinking a lot. And when she got drunk, she, quote, did mischief. One of her favorite tricks was to call the offices of former friends and publishing industry colleagues to ask for them. When they declined her call, she'd call back and pretend to be Nora Ephron or someone else suitably appealing to a sycophant, like Barbara Streisand's assistant. When the friend rushed to the phone to talk to the celebrity, Lee would greet them with a staccato burst of profanity, wit, and then a resounding dial tone. It was a momentary flush of satisfaction. Lee proved herself cleverer than the sycophants and maybe made them feel foolish in the process. Of course, all good things come to an end. Nora Ephron's lawyer eventually sent Lee a cease and desist letter, and two detectives showed up on her doorstep accusing her of harassment. She promised to be good, but knew that Jin brought out the worst in her, and she was likely to use the phone to be wicked again. But then her phone service was cut off, one too many missed phone bills, and that was that. In another story, having the police visit you and then your phone being cut off might be the rock-bottom moment. That wasn't it for Lee. No, that moment came with the flies. It was in early 1990 that 50-year-old Lee first noticed the flies. Well, initially there was just the one, then a whole lot more. She didn't know where they were coming from, but they felt like a problem she could handle, unlike her long-dead literary career. So she set out to take care of the insects. But so much flypaper hung like streamers around the apartment did little to help. Her landlord promised to send an exterminator, but the man took one look at the state of Lee's apartment and refused to come any closer. Lee couldn't see it at the time, but the cause of the flies and the exterminator's disgust were the same. Lee's beloved 21-year-old cat, Jersey. The cat was dying, and there was nothing Lee could do about it. The local vet promised that there was no pain, it was just old age. Lee could hardly afford a second opinion, so she just let her best friend be. The trouble with that plan was that Jersey stopped using her litter box and instead started doing her business underneath Lee's bed. The smell, which Lee never seemed to notice, had attracted the flies, repelled the exterminator, and felt like the firmest of rock bottoms. Finally, Lee had arrived at her darkest hour. 
And in her desperation, she knew she had only one choice left. It was time to hold her nose and return to a world she thought she'd left in her past. But it wasn't the welfare office. No, Lee Israel, New York Times bestseller, was going to write articles for Soap Opera Digest. Given her financial state, she didn't have the luxury of thinking it was beneath her anymore. Well, she could still think it as she cashed their checks. Unfortunately, they weren't large checks, but Lee found that she enjoyed the work. She was writing pieces about old-time radio soaps. And this might be a very different story had she not focused on that specific topic. But she did, so here we are, at the Library for the Performing Arts at Lincoln Center, where Lee was digging through a box of information about Elaine Carrington. She was a writer who created radio soaps and wrote 12,000 episodes during her lifetime. Crucially, Lee was in the library's general reader's room, not a more secure space. Ordinarily, this would mean that the box of materials didn't contain anything terribly valuable, nothing that should have been kept under lock and key. That's why it was odd when Lee opened a folder and found a number of personal letters. These were the kinds of things that should have been monitored more closely. Still, Lee wasn't about to alert the librarians to their mistake, not until she'd had a good look at them. And it took only moments to realize that the notes weren't just your everyday missives. They were written to Carrington by Fanny Bryce, the star of stage and screen. The letters were typed on personalized note-sized stationery and weren't that exciting, to be honest. At least, the content wasn't. But Lee knew that the fact that they were letters from THE Fanny Bryce, that they carried her signature, gave them value. It also made just holding them incredibly tempting for Lee. You see, by this stage, Jersey the cat had died, and Lee had quite accidentally adopted a tortoiseshell kitten she found on the street. Half of the kitten's face was an orange color and the other was black, so naturally Lee named her Doris after a two-faced former lover. But like Lee's ex, Doris was causing trouble. She wouldn't eat and Lee couldn't afford the $75 for diagnostic tests to find out why. But now, here in the Library for the Performing Arts, Lee had a solution to that very immediate problem. It was barely worth thinking about. She picked up three of the Fanny Bryce letters, walked casually into the restroom, and slipped the letters into her shoe. Then, slightly nervous, Lee gathered up her things, returned the box of Elaine Carrington materials to the librarian, and left, feeling exalted once she hit the streets. As she searched for a payphone, Lee wasn't weighed down by the crushing guilt of a first-time thief. After all, Fanny Bryce and Elaine Carrington were long dead. She and Doris, however, were alive and needed money to stay that way. She called the closest autograph dealer, a store just across the road from Lincoln Center. The woman who answered said she was interested in the Fanny letters and invited Lee to come right over. On her way to the store, Lee started inventing a backstory for how she came into possession of the letters. She came up with cousin Sidney Brozen, a wealthy, well-connected world traveler who loved big personalities and collected their letters. 
He'd left his entire collection to Lee on his deathbed, and she was authorized to do with it whatever she wished. Except she was never to sell the letters of his tortured sopranos, Maria Callas and Rosa Poncel. She was proud of the story, thinking that the details and specificity made it believable. But the dealer in question never even asked. She read through the three Fanny Bryce letters and offered Lee $40 for each. As she was counting out the bills, she told Lee that she'd happily pay more if the letters weren't so dry. Boring content or not, the letters had just made Lee easy money. And for the first time in a long time, she had some jingle in her jeans. Feeling flush, she decided to hop in a taxi to get home. When she got there, she was delighted to see that Doris had finally started eating, so there was no need to spend her earnings on the cat. Still, the money wouldn't last long. But that wasn't going to be a problem. There were plenty more Fanny Bryce letters just sitting, forgotten in a box in a library storeroom. Lee could easily go back to pick them up. There was just the issue of the dull content. If only they were more interesting, Lee figured dealers would offer her better prices. And if no exciting letters existed, well, Lee had the skills to change that. Coming up, Lee Israel has the time of her life. Now back to our story. Erstwhile biographer Lee Israel was on the hunt for a new typewriter. Well, not a new typewriter. She wanted an old one, ideally the kind that Fanny Bryce might have used. So she made her way to a local hardware store and paid $30 for a vintage model. Once she confirmed that the typeface looked like the one printed on the letters, she moved on to the next step of her plan. She returned to the library, asked to see the box of Elaine Carrington artifacts again, and swiped more letters just like the first time. And now... Now came the fun part. Lee loaded the letters into her new, old typewriter and rolled them through to the bottom, where there was plenty of white space beneath Bryce's signature. That's where she added her postscripts. Exactly what she wrote for all of the stolen letters isn't clear, but Lee described them as a couple of hot sentences. But they were so much more than that. Her embellished letters showed off Lee's incredible knack for slipping into the mind of her subjects, molding her words to sound like theirs. Writing about the birth of one of Bryce's grandchildren, Lee added, P.S. He has my old nose. Do I have to leave him an extra something for repairs? She was funny. She was insightful. She was writing. It was almost as if she was born to do it. And the chips kept falling in her favor. After the Fanny Bryce letters eventually ran out, she came across a collection of more than 150 letters written by silent film star Louise Brooks. It was another treasure trove. But there was a problem with the letters. Security. When she'd found the Fanny Bryce letters, Lee had been in the general reading room at the Library for the Performing Arts, where there was virtually no security. But this time, she was in a much more secure space, the Catherine Cornell Room. There was no way she was going to be able to steal even one of the valuable letters. But that didn't mean they were worthless. It just meant that Lee was going to have to be more enterprising. 
Fortunately, the letters had several things going for them. The first was that Brooks typed her letters, and the second was that she printed them on plain paper. In other words, Lee could conceivably duplicate the letters from her Upper West Side apartment. So, although she wasn't allowed to make photocopies of them, Lee spent weeks taking detailed notes on the Louise Brooks letters. She learned her writing style, made note of the way Brooks underlined and emphasized her thoughts with red, orange, and purple pencil. After a while, Lee felt intimately familiar with Louise Brooks. But that was only part of the equation. Lee knew she couldn't print fake letters on ordinary paper, not if she expected them to sell. She needed something older, paper that looked the same vintage as the ones Brooks herself wrote on. In what felt like another sign that Lee's fortunes were turning around, her favorite library obligingly provided just what she needed, again. While looking through some books that belonged to Austrian-born actress Maidie Christians, she found a stack of loose-leaf paper, invitingly blank and aged to perfection. She tucked a healthy supply of the innocent-looking sheets into her bag and went on her way. Then, sitting at her typewriter, Lee got to work. By this stage, she knew enough about Brooks and the way she wrote that crafting a letter that could have come from her was fairly easy. It would have been even easier if she copied some of the originals in their entirety, but Lee refused to do that. Sure, she'd lift a phrase here and there, but she never copied a letter outright. Not at this stage, anyway. She had integrity. This might seem like a strange way to look at the situation, but in a 2012 interview with NPR's All Things Considered, researcher and business ethics professor Anne Tenbrunsel points out that it's not all that unusual. Dr. Tenbrunsel explains that people making a decision with a business frame of mind are, quote, significantly more likely to lie than someone explicitly thinking about ethics. Dr. Tenbrunsel told NPR that this is because when your mind is in business mode, you're setting specific goals for yourself. You want to succeed to be seen as competent. We can assume that at that moment, Lee was paying attention to her new, morally dubious business venture. And luckily for her, it was something she was very, very good at. Lee was a talented biographer, experienced in the art of slipping into another person's head to see through their eyes. Pretending to be someone else was as easy as it had been to find that stack of paper. So the paper was a gift, the forgeries a fun exercise. The real problem came when it was time to sign the damn things. Lee had managed to trace Brooks' signature at the library onto the thinnest paper she could find. But the heavier vintage paper she was using for her letters made tracing impossible, and copying the signature freehand was a non-starter. Nothing she tried worked, and without a believable signature, the letters were worthless. But then Lee got creative, industrious, she laid an old television set on the ground, it hadn't picked up a signal in forever, and used the glow from the screen as an improvised light box. It worked. The signatures weren't perfect, but she reasoned her subjects were old, they were ill, they were sometimes drunk. It would do. She was right. 
Lee's Louise Brooks forgeries sold well, and with every sale, she learned things that would help her write the next letter. One of the biggest lessons was that dealers loved scandalous content. She learned early on, a clucked tongue meant a better price. But of course, scandal wasn't the only thing that made Lee's forgeries so appealing. With her skill for understanding her subjects and her own brand of dry, acerbic wit, she delighted collectors by putting words into the mouths of beloved celebrities. Before long, she was branching out, creating letters from other literary and Hollywood icons. She became Humphrey Bogart, Tennessee Williams, Lillian Hellman, and with each new subject came a new old typewriter. She didn't want anyone to notice that the letters she was bringing them all looked the same. So Lee became a frequent visitor to a store in downtown Manhattan that sold vintage machines. One day, she was perusing their shelves when she came across a German model with a keyboard featuring an umlaut, the small double dot that sometimes hovers over a vowel. Looking at the typewriter, Lee thought of a woman who might have been amused by such a novelty, the writer and satirist Dorothy Parker. Now here was someone Lee could have some real fun with. She bought the machine and got to work. As with all her letters, Lee dutifully did research to make sure the content didn't set off any alarms, studying biographies as well as actual letters written by her subjects. Some of those letters contained sentences too perfect to alter or leave out, like Dorothy's announcement, I have a hangover that's a real museum piece. Lee included that in what is perhaps her most iconic forgery. It's a letter written to apologize for saying or doing something offensive when Dorothy was drunk. Lee wrote, To save me this kind of exertion in the future, I'm thinking of having little letters run off saying, Can you ever forgive me, Dorothy? Of course, Lee wasn't all that concerned with forgiveness. Not yet, anyway. For now... She was just getting started. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with the rest of Lee Israel's story. Lee was on a roll, but it couldn't last forever, and her schemes started coming apart at the seams. Before long, her story swelled to include a grand jury, an ex-con, and just a touch of blackmail. For more information on Lee Israel, we found her memoir, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Memoirs of a Literary Forger, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Joel Callen, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Vanessa Richardson. You aren't supposed to know about them. 
unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, each week we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.